Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Ken Skates, who is the Cabinet Secretary for Economy and Transport. Ken, you're a Wrexham man, aren't you? I am. I was, well, I, I was born in Wrexham, grew up in between Mould and Rithin in the foothills of the Cluidium Range, a little village called Pantaroo. Uh, went to the little primary school in the neighbouring village, Gwynafield, uh, about the same time, well, it was the same time as Johnny Buckland, who went on to become a member of Coldplay. Matt Barbett as well grew up in the same community. He went on to become a newsreader for Sky and for BBC Radio One. So it was an exciting time uh, growing up back then in the 80s and 90s. It was very challenging at times. Um, But it was a lovely community in terms of the cohesion, a lot of big families. And so several of my brothers, I'm one of five boys, several of my brothers had friends in the same families that I had friends in as well. So there was, it was a really close-knit community. Was it a political family? Not mine, no. Um, my granddad was, on my mum's side, was about the only political person. He was incredibly left-wing, the most left-wing person that I've ever met. And, and that's probably saying something. It, yeah, he really was. He was a dock worker in Liverpool, really hard-working person, big family. Uh, so he was the only overtly political person. Uh, my mum and dad, they're concerned about issues, but they're not really aligned to political parties as much as I am. So you went and did uh, studies at yeah. Cambridge, didn't you? And yeah. um, Remind uh, me what you were studying there? All right, this sounds like a typical kind of progression for a politician, that you do A-levels, you go to uni, to Oxbridge, and then you get elected. But actually, as the first person in the history of my family to, to complete A-levels, actually, and then subsequently to go on to university so it's a really big thing um, for everyone although once I got to university two of my older brothers then went back to school night school and ended up going to university as well and uh, the school just wasn't for them neither of them particularly enjoyed it had bad experiences but they went back to night school in their 20s and then went on to uni and they're both more qualified than I am now Uh, but I went to to Cambridge and studied a subject that was called social and political science but it was it was a whole bag of subjects. I ended up specialising in social psychology, media, and economics. And in fact, you came out and you became a journalist. Journalist, you? yeah, yeah. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, and so I took some time out and just thought and thought about what I really wanted to do. And it was it was either politics or journalism. And I felt there were a lot of issues at the time that I was quite passionate and quite angry about, very local as well. And so I thought journalism was the best chance to, A, get social justice, and B, to expose injustice. So I applied to a number of the local papers up in northeast Wales. I got an offer from the Chronicle, um, which is a weekly paper, and an offer from 
the what was then the Flintshire Evening Leader. Uh, it's no longer an evening paper. And I took the daily job on the advice of a friend who had been a journalist for a while who said, if you really want the best experience, go for the intensity of a daily uh, publication. You may have to work harder and it'll be more stressful, but it, you'll feel what it's like in a national newsroom that way. So I worked at the uh, Flinch Leader at a, the Mould office and then the Shotton office and then spent time in the Wrexham office for several years. And I also, towards the end of my time in journalism, I... Um, for my sins, I also worked on a casual basis for a few nationals, including the Daily Mail on a Sunday. Daily I, I only made one day there, though. Uh, oh. uh, I worked for a while, and I really enjoyed it. It was in the days when Rosie Boycott was editor for the Express, and there was a tiny team in Manchester, but I worked with them for a while, and that was a great experience. Um, and I worked with the journalist who, many years before, had... Uh, had exposed the story about Geoffrey Archer and, yes. and he paid the price. Um, so I was with him the day that Geoffrey Archer was exposed. It was quite something to see this journalist whose career had obviously been impacted by action that that person had taken years ago against his then paper. It was the star, I think it was, back then. And on the day that he was essentially vindicated and shown to have been reporting the truth, there were no great celebrations. I think it was just relief that this period of come to an end and actually he'd been shown to have written the truth. I also tried working for a few sessions, a few Sunday sessions at the Times, that was interesting mm. as well. But of course none of these survived very long back in uh, the late 90s and most of them have now gone, the officers in Manchester, uh, with contraction of newsprint, opportunities for journalists outside of the big, big cities became fewer and more difficult to secure. So I, I became chief reporter on the Flincher Evening Leader. I enjoyed that job. I really enjoyed that job. I look back fondly on that. It was stressful, really stressful. Um, but after a while, I thought, actually, you know, a shift now into politics might be the right thing to do. You can report on injustice in the press as a journalist. You can, to a degree, you can influence change. But in politics, you... You know, you really, at the end of the day, you've got that button, that vote, or you can go into the lobby and vote. So I then went to work for Mark Tammy, who had just been elected to Westminster, um, representing on the side. Mark's one of the most decent people I've ever met. And it was, it was a joy working for him. Strong uh, beliefs, strong sense of purpose. And he was a great boss, brilliant boss, really understanding. That was a pleasure. And then I, I ran in the 2007 election to the Assembly on the regional list in North Wales as top of the list. Probably they, weren't going to get elected. That's what we thought, and that's why I stood. I didn't, mm. I didn't want to be elected at that point. I enjoyed working for Mark. I, wanted to, I didn't want to leave North Wales. And uh, kind of building up to that time, I'd gone through a period of counselling therapy to deal with generalised anxiety disorder, and I still hadn't completed that, kind of that journey. And so I, would, I had no intention on leaving the area, because when you have something like generalised anxiety disorder in similar conditions, you tend to shrink the world around you and you fear anywhere that's unfamiliar. And so I, I stood because I was making up the numbers. But on the night of the count, the messages were coming through that Anne Jones was in trouble and that I forget one of the others was in trouble. And uh, Mark whispered in my ear at the count, looks like you're going to Cardiff. And, uh, and I was pretty devastated at that point. Thankfully, I wasn't, and I stayed working for him a while longer. And uh, and then by 2010, 
we discussed things again. He thought it was a good time to stand for election with the purpose of actually getting elected. And so, Clued South, South, yeah, succeeding Karen Sinclair. And it's been a huge privilege. Feels like it's been an eternity now down in the bay. Uh, It's only been, uh, what, seven and a half years, but it has been a great privilege. And and, uh, the community of Clued South, it's an interesting contrast to Allen Deeside in many respects, in that Allen Deeside is largely a steel and pottery. Historically, steel and pottery were the two big industries there. In Clued South, agriculture is a huge part of the rural economy, and it's Labour's biggest, geographically the biggest constituency in Wales that we hold. And there are lots and lots of small villages so it's a bit, like, a bit more like the area that I grew up in rather than the area that I worked uh, for Mark Tarmy in. And it wasn't enormously long after you got elected, was it, that um, people started talking about you as a potential future leader? And I was really nervous about that. I didn't like that at all. I was really uncomfortable about that for a number of reasons. I think once people start speculating and even promoting you, touting you as a even a potential minister, um, but certainly a potential future leader you become even more acutely aware of your your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities. And if you are self-aware and start kind of focusing too much on your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities, it's not long before you actually start saying to yourself, I'm not sure I should be in this job. Um, you know, do I have what it takes to be down here? And I remember, I remember clearly the opening of the fourth assembly back in, 2011 um, that's an occasion when you have all of the pomp and ceremony the Queen comes along and actually quite a few royals attended and that was an incredibly nervous time where I, and because I was thinking I, I'm really not sure that I should be down here so it took, it took a while to become a bit more confident to find my feet I was really lucky in that I had a good office really good staff and Karen Sinclair was great support. And I just focused in the first six months on pretty much entirely on constituency matters and then steadily got more involved in issues that relate to the whole of Wales. And so in the second year, I uh, put forward backbench uh, legislation proposal for extending the period that looked after children can stay with their carers. And that, and that was Still to this day, even though I've, I've served in government for many years now, I think five years, five and a half years, I think on the back benches that particular intervention is still something that I feel was the most important, one, that, one of the one, things that I'm most proud of. And I think by the end of 2012, I was far more comfortable with being down here. Not a day goes by where I don't question whether A, I'm really comfortable in the role because of B, I'm not entirely convinced that I am the best person for the job that I do in Clurid South and certainly down here. But I think I spoke, I remember having a chat with uh, Kirsty Williams about this. And I said, Kirsty, do you still get nervous? This is when she was, before she was in government, so this is when she would stand up every Tuesday and quiz the First Minister. I said, do you still get nervous at all in that role? Because you look so confident when you stand up and you're so competent. And she said she always gets nervous. Every Tuesday, standing up, she always gets nervous. And she said, if you're not nervous doing the job, if you're not questioning yourself, questioning your ability, 
you're probably not doing the best job you can. So, so yeah, that was, that was a big help as well. But conventional wisdom says that politicians are never supposed to show any self-doubt and they're always supposed to present an image of being very self-confident. Yeah, and I think that's, and I think there are quite a few politicians who really don't have much self-doubt and do have more confidence and capability. And I think that's probably why a lot of politicians, are, well, politicians as a whole are unpopular. But I think times are changing, and it sounds cliche, but we are getting more humans elected to political office now, for good or for bad as well, because, of course, there are some people who I despise who have been elected to office and elected to significant positions who I think they may be human, but they they also carry with them an inability to empathise with all of the people that they supposedly serve, Donald Trump is a perfect example, I think. But I think you're right. Traditionally, if if you didn't present yourself as confident with huge self-belief and a strong, compelling vision, then you were weak and therefore you couldn't be elected and therefore you shouldn't be selected. And I think we've now moved on from that and it's recognised that actually people that sit in a parliament, whether it be Westminster, here in uh, Wales, wherever it might be, you have to ensure that that chamber, the people that sit in that chamber, fully reflect the society as a whole that they represent. We've got a very diverse society and we've got a lot of people out there who I think actually value politicians who talk about their own weaknesses now and vulnerabilities. We've just had the leadership election. I don't know where I'll be this time next week, whether I'll be in government, out of government, whether I'll be shuffled out of this role, but we don't know. But I do know that no matter where I'm going to go, I'll still be championing the need to improve our emotional health in society and our mental health and the degree of fairness and compassion that we show to one another because we live in a sick society emotionally. I, last week, on Monday, uh, I went to the funeral of my eighth friend who is believed to have taken his own life. Been in quest which will determine that, but eight friends I've lost in my adult life, seven of those are men. Eight suicides, it's a huge waste, but it's its the tip of an iceberg. It, suicide is the most profound consequence of mental illness or emotional distress, and we're still not getting to grips with it. And it can't just be for the NHS, it can't just be for government. There has to be a wider and a more concerted effort to deal with it, and that's why I'm, I was determined to get the mental health provision into the economic contract, which I won't go into detail because it's, it's take quite a while, but... I think we have to grasp the challenge of improving the mental health and well-being of the nation. A quarter of young women, a quarter now, have a mental illness. And I'm hearing more and more from education leaders that young people are presenting symptoms of low-level emotional and mental illness. And if that's not dealt with rapidly, then will manifest itself in a serious condition, whether it be depression or generalised anxiety disorder. Is it becoming more prevalent, or is it simply that we recognise the symptoms more? I think it's becoming more prevalent. I think we recognise the symptoms more, um, that's for sure, but there's a lot of evidence now. and you You can read a book such as Affluenza, which demonstrates the link between the particular economic model that we've adopted and embraced in Western English-speaking economies, the correlation between that and rising levels of mental illness, mental distress, societal distress as well. And why is that? Well, it's because we, with particularly the arrival of Reagan and Reaganomics and Thatcherism, we accepted that 
in order to pursue happiness, you had to pursue your own material gain, wealth gain, the greater wealth equals greater happiness, which is simply not true. It's proven that once you reach a certain level of income, any increase above that level does not provide a corresponding increase in your level of contentment or happiness. And actually there's proof now that the more that you're earning, because it's often associated with greater responsibilities and therefore greater stress, leads to lower levels of emotional well-being. But we were believed with Reaganomics and Thatcherism that, well, to borrow a phrase from Gordon Gecko, that greed is good. And although I think we moved on a lot, there are still people who believe that, you know, there are still the geckos of this world who believe that it's only through wealth creation and wealth creation predominantly for the few, with a trickle down to the rest, that we will improve society and the well-being of society. It's not right. It's not true. And so we adopted this economic model that led us to believe that labels are more important, more sustainable um, contributing factors to our happiness and our satisfaction. We also allowed, and I think it was really dangerous, we also allowed ourselves to believe that the workplace could be, should be, the, the least secure, the least safe place that we occupy in our waking moments. And I think for most people, they wouldn't question why work is a stressful place or the workplace is a stressful place, because that's work. You go there to be stressed. Whereas actually, in modern society, we face a huge amount of stress because of social media, which follows us everywhere, right into our homes. And that's a particular factor that's contributing to emotional illness and distress amongst young people. But also, the safe place that was traditionally the home is not necessarily the safe place for all people today. And I want to see us flip on its head our approach to the economic model that we, that we follow, whereby I'd prefer to see the workplace... Um, viewed as the safe place in our daily lives, in our waking moments, where in work, because you're able to contribute, because you're able to be competent, because you're in a safe environment with people who understand that you do face challenges outside of the workplace, that it will become an environment in which you can feel at ease. Um, That's not to say that it would lead to a decline in productivity levels. Actually, quite the opposite. Those businesses that have the most robust well-being initiatives and policies are also the ones that are showing the greatest improvements in productivity. And so I would like the workplace to be seen as the safe place that people um, can occupy. Um, Equally, I'd like to see that applied to um, education spaces as well. And there's a great example up in Liverpool of Hubert College, where there are policies relating to behaviour, zero tolerance of zero tolerance, if you like. It doesn't matter what you wear, it doesn't matter what you look like. Um, You should not be judged, you shouldn't be insulted, you shouldn't be hurt by anyone. And equally, you should treat everyone else with respect. Um, There's an approach there that says that you should behave, that you should turn up on time, that you should be able to feel at ease. And as a consequence... That college is now that the premises in one of the most deprived communities of Britain. Those premises are seen by the community as their safe place now. It's where young people can go and not be judged, not be harassed, not feel stressed, not feel insecure. They'll go there and there'll be a warm, safe environment. And I want to see that sort of approach applied everywhere. And we can do that through the extension of the economic contract. You shouldn't get public money unless you are delivering for social benefit. 
and that could that currently applies to business with the economic contract. But I'd like to see that extended across the public sector, and I'd like to see that extended across the procurement because there are too many people who are turning up at work too stressed to really contribute to the full. And right now, whilst absenteeism is a major problem for the economy, an even bigger problem is in-work stress and mental illness because people are bringing into the workplace whatever factors are contributing to an unsafe place outside of work. And that's why I think it's really important we start considering the working environment as a safe place, the education environment as a safe place, so that whatever challenges people have outside of work and education, they can feel safe within um, an environment they'll occupy for eight or so hours a day. And yet sometimes a workplace isn't yeah. a safe place. No, absolutely. And as you've been talking about this extremely important issue, I've had something on my mind, which is the way that Carl Sargent was treated. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was aware, because he told me of problems in his workplace. We're talking about a man who was a, a powerful minister, mm-hmm. who nevertheless felt vulnerable in his place of work. And I know that you, in the care that you offered to Carl while he was alive, and in the care that you've offered to his family since he died, have been very much affected by what happened to him. Could you talk about that? Um, Yeah, it's been a really, really challenging period. The last year and a bit has been... Um, a horrible, horrible experience for the family and for Carl's friends. Um, There's no doubt that it's impacted on a large number of people. Immediately after Carl died, I was again at that point of question, should I be in this job? Should I be down here? But it wasn't by that point a lack of confidence that was leading me to ask those questions. It was whether I really wanted to be operating in such circumstances and environment and I wasn't alone in questioning questioning whether to carry on uh, there were others um, and that's only natural I think you do that but I think it was important to continue for many many reasons uh, not least to ensure that um, that there was support there for Carl's family that they didn't see um, somebody from well, their community kind of giving up as a consequence of the death of their dad, or partner, son. And it was also important, I think, to some of my colleagues as well, that we, that we rallied, that we, um, that we remained strong, as strong as we possibly could do. But there have been incredibly challenging periods during the last... Um, 13 or so months and there continues to be because of course the inquest is ongoing Um, an inquiry um, led by the QC is yet to begin and so unfortunately the distress will continue for a while and the way way to deal with that and this would apply to Jack who's now elected to the assembly um, to colleagues the way to deal with that is to always look to the longer term and to be able to picture in your own mind um, a more positive place. But there's been a catastrophic breakdown in the way that Carl was treated, wasn't there? Because there were set procedures that could have been followed which weren't followed. I mean, to have a situation where a man is accused 
of something quite serious and not told exactly what the allegations were yeah. is surely in itself a fundamental breach of natural justice. And this is what the, uh, the coroner, I think, has taken interest in. Um, it's quite clear from the evidence taken so far that, um, that that's a key feature of the, the inquest, but I think it's also going to be a key feature of the QC's inquiry. I think what I would say about the inquest is that um, John Gittins, the coroner, has demonstrated yet again that he is somebody who is incredibly competent, who is incredibly compassionate as well towards the families of people who um, he's carrying out inquests essentially on behalf of. And he's incredibly fair, but determined with it. Um, and as a North Walian, I've read a number of reports in the press of inquests that he has um, that he has led, and so I've been very aware of his work over quite some time. And um, and I think it's safe to say that this matter couldn't be in safer hands. Um, and he needs to uh, see it through to conclusion in the new year, but also. There is a very clear need then to move on to the inquiry uh, that will be led by the QC that will, um, if you like, seek answers to some of those questions that can't be raised or can't be answered through the inquest alone. How do you think the outgoing First Minister's legacy will be affected by all this? Well, it's interesting in the, in the context of what's just happened recently in America with uh, the death of George H. Bush, um, immediately after George H. Bush left office, um, he was deemed as a failure because he was a one-term president. Over time, people um, are judged differently based on what they do after they've left, left office, and, um, and there can also be longer-term uh, reflections on what people have achieved and what people perhaps did, didn't achieve when they were in office. So over time, Judgment will change. It will um, it will evolve. I think there's no doubt that there are still really serious questions to be answered. It's a huge issue still to be resolved, and that will, in the short term, at least affect the legacy. On the positive side, I think as a government, there are some huge successes that can be identified. I could run through several within my portfolio just in the last 24 months or so. Um, but in terms of being able to construct a fuller picture that can then inform a proper legacy, this matter of Carl Sargent's death needs to be fully dealt with and seen through to the very end. So perhaps the most controversial decision that you've taken as a minister is the one where you decided not to proceed with the Circuit of Wales and you came in for quite a bit of criticism over that from some quarters because mm. for some people it was seen as the panacea for yeah. all the valley's problems, etc. What was it that got you to a position where you were able to say no to that project and do you think that you made the right decision? I'm convinced I made the right decision over the Circuit of Wales. All of the evidence showed that there would not be the benefits that have been promised to the community. Um, the, the Circuit of Wales would not be the answer to all of the ills of all of the communities across the heads of the valleys. Um, and that there was huge risk involved in it. And I know many would have liked us to short-circuit the due diligence and, uh, and provide the, the support that was 
requested, but that would have put at risk something in the order of £370 million of schools and hospitals and roads and rail infrastructure. It was just a huge risk, and the due diligence was really important to, uh, to reflect on. And I had some incredible support from within government in terms of ensuring that we didn't bypass any process, that we didn't short-circuit the due diligence. And some people were saying, well, it's only the equivalent of a couple of pence per person over X number of years. You know, just take take the punt. Just gam- You do not gamble on that scale with public money and with schools or with other uh, public services. You cannot gamble uh, on that scale. And some people talked of it as being um, the equivalent of a Springfield monorail, this facility that was being sold as the answer to all of our problems. And that might have been a cruel analogy, but there was something in it, I think, in that too many people were convinced that if it went ahead, they would have a job for life, um, that it would solve poverty. Um, but frankly, you don't solve poverty just with one silver bullet, you have to get to the causes of poverty, and they are often intergenerational factors. Uh, they are most often related to aspiration and skills as well. And they're also related not just to the lack of opportunity, but also to the lack of pathways, and that can include physical infrastructure, roads, rail, and so forth. Now, what would have happened if we put up this £370 million of public money in the valleys, if that had failed if that had failed, would anyone then, would any business then take the risk as they would see it of investing in one of those communities where the Circuit of Wales had been so prominent? And I'm afraid if failure had come, that would have been a stain on those communities, not just for years, but potentially for decades. Now, I'm, I'm in no doubt that opposition politicians would say, well, there you go, you've just proven that you lacked courage, that you were too scared of it failing. But actually, all of the evidence shows that failure was most likely. And for the benefit of a short-term period of being able to turn up with high-visibility jackets on, with shovels in my hand, God, can you imagine the long-term damage that would have caused? And politicians do have a duty to think about the long-term. They can't just think about short-term benefits and opportunities to get in the press and to garner support in the community and at the end of the day I concluded that it was in the long-term interests of those communities that um, were told would benefit from the scheme that actually we invested our money in some of the more significant causes of industrial decline and uh, poverty so that's why we're putting 100 million pounds into into the valleys to make sure that jobs that will be here today and tomorrow and the day after and that can be taken by people in those communities and jobs that pay a decent wage are going to be provided. So Mark Drakeford is taking over as the new First Minister. What hopes do you have from him about what he will be able to do for Wales? Well, the reason I didn't stand, although I'd said to myself shortly after Carl died, there's no way that I'd um, consider for quite a while um, any prospective run for leadership. You know, if anything, I'd want to get out. So uh, in the immediate term, as we've talked about, I didn't want to go for it for those reasons. But 
once Mark had expressed to me that he'd be seeking leadership, I knew then I didn't need to run because you don't need to, if you like, fight the campaign if you can win the crusade another way. And Mark's crusade is for a fairer, kinder society. It's for a greater degree of equality. He's one of the most intelligent but also compassionate people that I've ever met in politics. And so there was no doubt in my mind that Mark was going to be the person that I would support. And in terms of what he will give to Wales, well, first of all, he ran as a 21st century socialist. And I now believe that we have to govern as a 21st century socialist government. And the the party in the Assembly should rally behind him as a 21st century socialist group in the Assembly. There was a very clear choice in the election for members, and members chose Mark. And so we need to deliver for them, and that is with a radical agenda. And Mark will be radical, because what I've noticed with Mark is there is an audacity there that we really do need to make the most of, because... Mark doesn't ask the question, can we do something? He asks the question, should we do something? No matter how difficult the challenge, no matter how many hurdles we have to overcome in order to do it, should we do it? And if the answer is yes, we do it. We do it. And I think that's going to be really important because in the coming years we're going to have huge challenges. We already know we're going to have issues to pick up um, in the new year, really big decisions, but there are going to be huge challenges to come. And we need a leader who is ready to ask the question, not can we do something, but should we do it? And I think there's also an urgency. One of the frustrations that I think Mark and I share and many others share is the lack of speed sometimes that we are able to affect change, that we are able to intervene, that we're able to reform. And so I think with Mark we will see an urgency alongside his audacity, his determination, his grit. And then finally, I'm not sure you'll find a politician in that assembly chamber who is more committed to democracy, and I think it's absolutely essential, given how large our party is now, that we continue with the um, democratisation of the party, and I think that's essential. OMOF was really important. One member and one vote was a really important campaign to win, And I'm keen that we see democracy spread through our party as much as possible. It has to be a party that the members themselves feel they run collectively. If we're not running a party in which we have collectivism driving our objectives, then can we really tell the population of the country that we are going to be a government if we are elected um, with collectivism at our heart? And that's what we're about. We're about making sure that we are a party of the many, not the few. That we're a party that uh, that is fully committed to democratic principles. And so I think that would be another important pursuit for Mark. So urgency, audacity, ambition, determination, and a genuine, sincere commitment to democracy. Do you think next time you might put yourself forward? Possibly. I wouldn't rule it out now. We don't know how long Mark will be First Minister for. I'm hoping that Mark will be First Minister for quite some time. I'd like him there for a longer period than I think 
he would prefer to be there for. I'd like him there for a very significant period. I wouldn't rule myself out now, but equally, I wouldn't rule out if Mark was there for eight years or so, nine years, then I wouldn't rule out leaving when he leaves either. If I get to stay in government for that long or in the Assembly for that long, you can never take um, the electorate for granted. But um, Because I know what Mark wants to achieve, what he wants to deliver, if we're able to deliver that, I would first of all then question whether there's anything more that I can do and whether there's therefore any more need for me to be down here. Thank you very much, Kinskates. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.